This week we're going to finish up Elisha and we're going to land in Jesus because Jesus uses a story from Elijah and Elisha. Uh, he uses this story when he inaugurates his ministry and the end result of that is on the first day of his ministry, his ministry vocation is really seen because his own people from his own hometown want to kill him day one of his ministry. And that actually testifies what's actually going to happen in his ministry because it was going to be his own people that turned him over to Rome. And when he went before Pilate, Pilate washed his hands and said, this is an innocent man. I, he washed his hands and said, I don't want any part in this. And the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day said, let his blood be upon us and our children. And it was upon them in 70 AD when Rome surrounded the city. And so anyway, that's a whole other thing. But um, they got what they asked for. And um, but but anyway, we're gonna we're gonna end in Jesus. We're gonna we're coming to um, soon. We're gonna go into from Elisha to Jeremiah's prophecy to the book of Daniel. Daniel lays out the four kingdoms that will be um, up until the time when actually Jesus the Messiah comes forth. He gives a prophecy of uh, Babylon, Persia, Grecia, and then the Roman Empire, and then Jesus comes. And then there's a prophetic picture of what it looks like from heaven. Jesus looks like a stone that destroys all of the other kingdoms. So the cross from heaven looks different than it looked on earth. So on earth it looked like Jesus was crushed, but from the kingdom perspective, it was actually Jesus who was doing the crushing. And so we're going we're gonna to really kind of focus in on that. And then uh, as this year kind of winds down, we're going to get into the New Testament and the story. And next year, we're going to really focus on equipping the saints uh, for the work of ministry. And we're going to actually get busy doing what it is actually we're called to do. And so anyway, um, 2 Kings 6, verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, "'My camp will be in such and such a place.'" And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. And so here's, there's something here for us. Here you have a king, and the king has plans. The king has influence. The king has power. But what the king doesn't have is revelation. So he has influence, but no revelation. He has power, but no revelation. He has manpower, money power, influence power, but no revelation. You can't see. And so that's, that's a great picture of the powers. The powers have power and have influence, but they don't have revelation. And so the word of the Lord comes to the king. Elisha has the word of the Lord. So Elisha is the really, really the one who carries really the kingdom influence. He's bringing a kingdom perspective to the situations that are going on on the earth. So Elisha, by revelation, understands the way the Syrians are going to come to invade Israel. And he sends a message to the king privately, and uh, you're going to see what's going to happen. And the man of God sent uh, to the king, saying, Beware that do you not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. In other words, he knew how the Syrians were going to attack Israel by revelation. So there's certain things that, are, that you know by information. The king had information. He had influence, but he didn't have revelation. And so Elisha has revelation. The king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him, Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once, 
or twice. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which one of us is for the king of Israel? So now what's happening is his, the king of Syria now begins to think that he's getting betrayed by one of his guys because Israel knows the plans of the enemy because the word of the Lord came to Elisha by revelation. So now this one person, one person whose ear is open to God and he's disrupting international war. He's disrupting things internationally. One person with his ear open and his eyes open. All it takes is one person. Watch. And one of the servants said, None, O Lord, King, but Elisha the prophet who is with Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In other words... God has given Elisha access to that which is hidden to other people. This is what it is to be kingdom citizens. We're supposed to have access to that which is hidden to other people. Things that other people can't hear and can't see, we should be able to hear and see because we live from the kingdom. So God is allowing Elisha, the man of God, to hear what the king is talking about in his bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, let me explain to you. The king of Syria is so deeply troubled and afraid by one man, one man, that he sends an army To surround the city for one man. Let's continue. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out. There was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him. Alas my master what shall we do? This servant's name is Gehazi. You're going to see that he has a greedy problem uh, and he doesn't really end well. Actually, that already happened uh, in in chapter 5. So this is Gehazi and he's talking to Elisha and he's afraid. He's saying, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. And and let me just, let's just drive this home. You can serve God and still be afraid. Um, You can serve the people of God and still not have the heart of God. You, you can serve the purposes of God and not live from the perspective of God. And, uh, you know, that's kind of normal. That's what most people actually do. So he answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So now, can you imagine, put yourself in, in the shoes of the servant. The servant must go, this old guy who's bald, by the way, he's bald and bearded. This old guy... Must be crazy. He, he's, he, I mean, just think, here you have, there, there's two guys. They're surrounded by a city, and you got some old bearded guy saying, there's more people with us than with them. See, Elisha is not talking about the natural realm. Elisha is talking about the realm of the kingdom. 
So here you have Gehazi who serves the purposes of the kingdom but cannot see. He serves God but he can't see. He serves God but he's blind. He was blinded by his greed. That's another thing because greed blinds people. That's chapter 5 which we kind of pass through. But he couldn't see. He was serving but he couldn't see. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So now, Elisha prays and says, open the eyes of my servant. Now his eyes are open, and he sees the realm of the kingdom. You're going to hear later that Jesus makes a reference to this. When Jesus is on trial, in Matthew 26, what you have is, Jesus makes a statement. He says this, I could pray to the Father, and the Father would send 12 legions of angels. He's talking about the hosts of heaven. And one of the things that we have to understand about being powerful is when someone is truly powerful, they don't always do what they can't do. That's, that's part of being powerful. Part of being powerful, when you're a powerful person, is, it's that you don't always do what you can do. You don't always do what's in your power to do. Sometimes power is actually not doing or saying anything. Sometimes the most courageous thing you can do is wait and hold your peace. So this is powerful. So Elisha lives with this understanding of the realm of the kingdom and the hosts of heaven that go with him because he bears the word of the Lord. He's God's representative, so God's kingdom is standing behind him. And he knows that. And so here you have two people in the same circumstance. One is afraid, one is not. One's eyes open, one is not. One is experienced, one is inexperienced. One is blinded by greed, one has eyes to see. One is living from fear, the other is living from faith. And so God opens the eyes of the servant so the servant could live from a place of faith. So he could know that he, things were going to be okay. You're going to see, this story gets really extreme and it's really, really a powerful story because it shows the heart of God. And, and that's what I want to communicate. I want to, I want to communicate the heart of God. But just remember that faith uh, allows us to see. Fear blinds us. Fear blinds us to what is surrounding us. Fear blinds us from seeing what we already have. The, 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 king, the realm of the kingdom was already encircled around them. It wasn't something they had to pray for. It was already there. So one of the things that fear does is fear blinds us to what we already have. And Elisha prayed, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to him, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me.
and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and they were inside Samaria, inside the city. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Do you see how the king is referring to the prophet? The king is calling the prophet my father. See, people in places of authority need to be fathered by the word of the Lord. Do you know that Pharaoh called Joseph my father too? See, because there is no authority greater than the word of the Lord. When someone is bearing the true word of the Lord, there is no authority on earth higher than the word of the Lord. That's why the king is subservient to the prophet, not because of position, because of purpose and because of what he's bearing. It was Elisha that anointed him king. But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away. And they went to their master. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Here's what happens. Let me, let me just tell the whole story through. And then we're going to jump into Jesus. Elisha has the word of the Lord. He knows the plans that the enemy is propagating against the people of God. God gives him this revelation. He tells the king of Israel, the king of Syria is afraid. So out of fear, he sends an army to surround the city to get a bald old guy. By the way. The bald old guy servant who serves him serves the purposes of God but can't see. So because he can't see, he's afraid. Because he's afraid, he can't see. He's blinded by greed, Gehazi. He can't see. So what happens is, Elisha prays that his eyes would be open, and then when his eyes were open, he calmed down. His perspective changed his climate. He, he just, all of a sudden, there's no more, uh, you know, he's no, he's no longer jittery. He, he's like, he's calm now. And Elisha lives from that place because he's aware of the realm of the kingdom that surrounds him because he's aware of his purpose. When you know your purpose, you know what surrounds you. And so he, he, anyway, the king sends an army into the city to get a bold, a bold old man. And Elisha, the man of God, prays that the, the army would be blinded. So the army is blinded. Then Elisha takes an army that came to kill him. And he takes them into the city of Samaria. He leads them there. And instead of killing them, he feeds them. This is God's mercy and God's grace for the Gentiles. This is the heart of God for all of the peoples of the earth, not just for the nation of Israel. This is the heart of God. God's heart is a heart of mercy. God wants to give us more than we deserve. God has given us a lot less than we deserve. God is good. 
And so now instead of taking advantage of and killing the Syrians who came to kill and raid and pillage their people, instead of doing that, God responds in an opposite spirit and feeds them and sends them away. That's how the kingdom works. The kingdom does not do business the way the world does business. We are kingdom citizens. That's how we are. We don't, we don't, the point of even the principle of the Old Testament of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is so that we could keep our eyes and teeth, not know how many eyes and how many teeth should I take from you. That's not the point. The point of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is that you keep your eyes and I keep my teeth. Right? So now people, citizens of the kingdom, live differently. So Elisha actually brings up an ethical question. He actually brings in war ethics, by the way, that you're not supposed to kill prisoners of war. I don't know if you caught that. That's actually an unethical thing to do. Killing prisoners of war is an unethical thing. Because even in war, there's actually ethics. That's what he mentions, by the way. So, so anyway, he, he says, we're not going to do that. We're going to feed them and send them home. And so they came for war, but the kingdom gave them peace and sent them on their way. And, and do you know that they never came back in that spirit of war? Because the kingdom is more powerful than the world. The kingdom of God is increasing. The world is passing away. The system of the world is drying people up and beating people down. It's passing away. And people's eyes are open to it when, they're, when they see their need. The world is passing away. Darkness is passing away. The true light is shining. Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. The kingdom is for the earth, but it's not of the world. We don't live according to the the system of the world. We're not bound to the system of the world. The world may be in a recession. The people of God don't have to be. The world is motivated by fear. We don't have to be. The world is blinded by greed. We don't have to be. The world will do anything to get ahead. We don't have to live like that. We can prefer each other. We can live differently. In fact, when we start to live like that, we become attractive to the world around us. And so Elisha bears the word of the Lord, which means he's there to show forth the heart of God. And so he shows God's heart of mercy. People come in to kill and to pillage the people of God. And God shows them mercy in the old covenant. God didn't become good in the new covenant. God was always good. God in the new covenant came to clear up any misunderstandings. And so the the greatest representation of what God is like is Jesus. God is Christ-like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus had power but did not use his power to control or to manipulate other people. Jesus would rather die for love than kill for freedom. Which is not American. By the way, that's kingdom. Americans will love to kill for freedom. In fact, we we live, I'm sorry to say this, but we live in in a nation... That is obsessed with violence, by the way. Obsessed with violence. That's not kingdom. So anyway, uh, kingdom is different. And our minds have to be renewed so that we live kingdom because kingdom is more powerful than world. Kingdom always trumps world. it's, It's hard sometimes for, for you to see that and it doesn't look like that initially. But kingdom trumps world Throughout history. 
Kingdom trumped world throughout history. The whole book of Revelation is about the dissolving of the Roman Empire through the gospel. Actually, it's not written to America. I know it's really hard for some folks to swallow that. They can't, they can't handle that. But if you really get to like, to, like, to like smart, real Bible people, that they know that the book of Revelation is not like about America. Americans think everything is about them. That's an American disease. But, but anyway, the point is, 230 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Roman Empire declared that we cannot stop them, so what they did is join them. Yeah. Now, we're going to go to Jesus. Jump with me to Luke 4. Um, Jesus, you're going to see. Uh, he, he, he says it himself, so it's, it's better for me to use his words. Luke 4, um, let me just kind of give you a little bit of what happens first. Jesus is baptized in Luke uh, 3. The Spirit of God comes upon Jesus. The Spirit of God is in Jesus for Jesus. The Spirit is upon Jesus for the work of the ministry. And so what happens is the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Heaven opens. And, and that's what happens. Directly after that, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. It's just like the nation of Israel. They go through the river into the wilderness. It's, it's, it's the story of Israel. And Jesus is embodying faithful Israel where they drop that he wasn't. And so he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And instead of cursing God and murmuring and complaining... He overcomes the enemy. He actually is the first person in the scriptures to speak authoritatively to Satan himself. He says, Satan, get behind me. In other words, you have no authority over me. You have no influence over me. You have nothing in me. And you can do nothing to me. In fact, Jesus is the creator. And if Jesus would withdraw his word, Satan would cease to exist. Satan is a created thing. Satan has never encountered a man like this before. Fully God, fully man with no sin and no fear. He has dominion, and he came to give it back to the people of God. So now Jesus goes in, and he goes and he gets tempted. And what is the whole temptation? The whole temptation is about his identity. Turn these rocks to stones if you're the son of God. In other words, use your power for your own purposes. He goes, no. It's written. He quotes Deuteronomy twice. But, but what is the enemy coming to steal? The enemy is coming to steal the word. What did the word just say? You're the son of God. What does the enemy say? If you're the son of God, prove yourself. And that's the same thing the enemy says to us. If you were a Christian, you would do that. If you were this, you would do that. Listen, you have to just press mute on him once and for all. Mute. I don't have time for that. I don't have time to listen to you. Go talk to someone else who will listen because I'm not going to talk to you. So anyway, and there's plenty of people who will listen to the devil. But hopefully we can grow up and mature and recognize when he's talking and just go, change the channel, I don't got time for that. So what happens is the enemy comes to steal the word because it's through the word that we overcome. The enemy says, if you're the son. What do you mean if? Heaven just announced that I'm the son of God in front of like a lot of people in the River Jordan. And in, in also in, in the most prominent ministry gathering... In about 400 years. Because God has been silent for 400 years until John the Baptist begins to speak. 
And John the Baptist was 18 miles outside of the city of Jerusalem preaching in a wilderness and thousands of people came to him with no Facebook, no advertisement, no nothing. All he had is the word of the Lord. God always leads with the word of the Lord. So Jesus gets tempted, overcomes the temptation, and he goes in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and then he makes his way to Nazareth where he's from. And so in Nazareth, he's going to inaugurate his ministry in his hometown. And uh, this is what I want to get into because this is, and, and we're going to end here. Uh, Luke 4, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Jesus had a habit of going to the synagogue. That's like going to church. Jesus had a habit of not only going to church but participating. Jesus had a habit of being in the house of God, reading the word of God. Jesus is fully God and fully man, yet he chose to be in the house of, of God, even though God no longer lived in that house. Another person who was faithful to do what he knew to do, even when it wasn't fun and it wasn't exciting and there was no goosebumps and it didn't feel good. He was faithful and he showed up. And he read the scroll. He, his habits... Determined his reflexes. Your habits will determine your reflexes. Show me what is your habits and I will tell you your reflexes. Show me what you do daily and I will tell you how you will respond when pressure is put on you. If you get the word in you, once you get squeezed, the word will come out of you. No word, when you get squeezed, hell will come out of you. Because that's what's in you. So the goal is to get the word in you. And, and let me just encourage some folks. When you start reading, you may not know really what's going on, but you're making an investment in your account. And when there is a withdrawal that needs to be made, the Holy Spirit will activate what you put in there and give you understanding and give you words beyond your ability to understand. Because it's by faith we understand. And if you believe that faith comes by hearing, then you're going to read the word. You're going to get the word in you. You're going to listen to the word. You're going to do whatever you can to get those words of life into you. Because life is going to squeeze you. And once it squeezes you, then you'll know what's really inside of you. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up to read. So here's something. The Sabbath day is, is an important thing. And for us, it's not really a day. It's a person. My Sabbath isn't Sunday. It's Jesus. But since I'm thankful to Jesus, I set a day aside to rest and to not be in a rush and to not feel like I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do this. I suspend that until the next day. It's a get-to day, not a got-to day. And the point is that God made the Sabbath for us to enjoy him and for us to learn to step into the rhythms of grace and to know that we are not slaves. In Egypt, they couldn't have a rest day. They were slaves. Now they're a free people. They can have a rest day. And also, sin, rather, uh, the Sabbath was even before sin in the book of Genesis. So before sin entered in, before Adam screwed up, there was Sabbath. So Sabbath is before sin. 
So the principle of Sabbath is God created space for a day of rest. And, and the real, actually, the intention of God in creating a Sabbath is that Sabbath, God doesn't need to rest. He's not tired. If he was tired, he wouldn't be God. So he's not tired. Jesus is a, was fully man, so he needed to sleep. Jesus was fully God, so he could sleep in a storm. See, but the point here is that Sabbath was created for us. We were not created for the Sabbath. God created space to encounter us in a unique and a special way. And he did that to honor his image bearers. It was actually an act of honor toward humanity. He said, let me give you a day, a special day, where you could focus on me because you need it. It's not to meet God's needs. It's for our needs. And whatever needs that we don't get met in God will be met somewhere else. And most of the time when our needs are not met and we're needy, usually those needs are met in places that are not sustainable and not wise. And could lead to destruction fast. Depending on your personality, your background, and how healthy of a person you are. Verse 17. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of the favor of the Lord. That's the Jubilee year. That's every 50 years the debts of the people of God were canceled. And God did that to prevent systemic poverty. That's what it was. It was so that poverty wouldn't be passed down from generation to generation. So that's what Jubilee is for. 20. He closed the book and gave it to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness and marveled at his gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? There's a shift. Everyone's eyes are fixed on him. They're just marveling at his gracious words. And then they ask a question and say, isn't this Joseph's son? What is that to say? That's to say, isn't he illegitimate? Isn't he a child out of wedlock? His parents been married 30 years, and he's 31. Interesting. So they stumbled over what they thought they knew about him, which blinded them to who he really was and robbed them of what he had that they needed. That's what dishonor does. Dishonor blocks us from receiving what God has for us. You're going to see this is a culture of dishonor. They, they, they are in, because they still have a slave mentality, because they went from, uh, from being slaves to being free in the land to being exiled to being occupied. So they have a victim slavery mentality. They have a dishonor mentality, which means they cannot receive from God. 
And when you have a victim mentality or a poverty mentality or a slave mentality, it's never enough. You never have enough. You never have enough money. Uh, you, it's never enough. Never enough. Anyway, I, that's a whole other thing. Let me, let me stay out of that. 23, he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Now he's predicting and he's prophesying to them what they're going to say to him because he knows their heart. He knows where they're at. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. This is the word of God standing there in front of them. He put on skin. And he's before them and he's able to look into them and he knows right what's going on with them. He actually reads their mail and gives them a prophecy about how they're going to perceive him and what they're going to expect from him and what they're going to say to him. He knows them very, very intimately. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. Capernaum, by the way, was a fish village. It's where he chose to operate his ministry from. You know that he didn't point his ministry in Nazareth? He put it in Capernaum. You don't camp out in a place of dishonor. Then he said, Assuredly I say to you that no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, Jesus has just announced, by the way, he's giving us the interpretation of Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. He's actually saying that it was just fulfilled in your hearing. He's not asking them, he's telling them. Remember I said scripture interprets scripture, so I don't need to have any other opinions about Isaiah 61 and 2. 61, 1 and 2. Jesus just gave me opinion. His opinion's my opinion. So he's saying, hey, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, that's interpreted. Take your all commentaries, delete them because they don't mean anything. This is the meaning of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. It's not up for discussion. I just told you. <laughs> it's very interesting. Now, he says no prophet is without honor except in his own country. And then he's going to cite two references to this idea, to this truth. As the body of Christ in the new covenant, we've got to get past a culture of dishonor so that we can receive people correctly. When I have people come in here next year, we're going to honor them for who they are. If they're a pastor, we're going to call them a pastor. If they're a prophet, we're going to call them a prophet. If they're an apostle, we're going to call them, we're going to call them what they are so that we receive from, what, from them what they have that we need. Jesus said, you honor a righteous man in the name of a righteous man, you receive a righteous man's reward. You honor a prophet in the name of a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. So to receive properly, there has to be honor. Honor is huge. If you're going to be a kingdom person, if you're going to serve in the kingdom, you have to understand honor. Very big. Here he goes. So Jesus is announcing now, I don't know if, you, if you're catching this, he's announcing that he's a prophet. He just said, no prophet is without honor except in his own country. So Jesus has just told the folks in his hometown that he's a prophet. We're going to see how that works out for him in a few minutes. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now Jesus is about to touch the national pride and the racism 
of the Jewish people, of his own people. Jesus is a Jew. He's talking to Jews. And he's saying, Elisha the prophet, during a famine in Israel, was not sent to the people of Israel, but was sent to the Gentiles to work a miracle to Gentiles. He's going to touch their victimhood. He, and he's not going to say, oh, they're there, poor little victim, it'll all be okay. We'll just do 10 years of inner healing. He's going to touch their nerve. He's going he, to touch it day one. He's, gonna, he's coming to touch all the nerves. All the monkeys are going to come out of the closet when Jesus comes to town. Jesus is not going to be tiptoeing around. Let me in, like, he's going to come in and he's going to blow the place out. And the result is they're going to want to throw him off a, a, a cliff, which is, by the way, unlawful to do in any society or culture. Anyway. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, the one story wasn't enough. Jesus had to bring forth a second illustration, and the second illustration was when God, through Elisha, healed a Syrian general who had taken Israelites captive, the slave girl who told uh, Naaman that there was hope for healing if Elisha was there, was an Israelite slave girl who had been taken from her family into captivity by the Syrians. And God healed that person who took her captive. Because God is good. God is better than we think. God is more merciful uh, than we know. The only thing that God does not have tolerance for is religious people who are condemning of other people. The only time God ever mentioned, Jesus ever mentioned hell was to religious people. Jesus never mentioned hell to a sinner, to a tax collector, to an adulterer, to a prostitute. Never mentioned hell to those people. The only time he talked about hell was to religious people who thought they were better than other people because they went to church and did their thing. By the way, that's, very, that's a very, Jesus never talked about hell in the context of evangelism. Never. It was always to religious people. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. <laughs> Who has wrath? God and Jesus or the people? The people. Now, they're mad at him, and all he has done is simply state history. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't call them lukewarm. He doesn't say, this church sucks. Your kid's program is no good. The carpet sucks. The place is ugly. There's no parking. He didn't... <laughs> Sounds familiar? <laughs> but he, he, he didn't say that. He didn't say your pastor sucks. He's no good. He doesn't... Have... He didn't say any of that. All he did is remind them of their own history, which was also his history. As a Jew. He was a Jew. Fully God, fully man, but he came from a Jewish womb. So all he did is remind them of the history, and the, the end result was they want to throw him off a cliff. Interesting. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city wall was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. That's that. Welcome to the ministry. Day one of the ministry. People from your own hometown literally want to throw you off a cliff. 
Welcome to ministry. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Here you see in this first story, in the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, in which he would die at the hands of his own people. Day one, they want to kill him. And all he did is remind them of God's grace to the Gentiles, God's grace to the nations. He reminded them of God's mercy, and they didn't like that. They wanted vengeance upon their enemies. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus actually taught the opposite. He actually said, love your enemies. They, they wanted um, retribution. He wanted reconciliation. They wanted force. He came with faith. And here's my concern. My concern is sometimes God comes in a way that is contrary to what we actually want. And when he does, we have to actually then refine what we want. And if we don't, we'll miss what God has. And I wonder, I wonder in our own life how many times we try to throw what God is doing off a cliff. Because of our own bitterness or anger or because of our own uh, resentment or, or the feelings that we struggle with or whatever it is that we're going through. And here's, here's what, I, what I want to stress. Jesus passed through the midst of them. And what, what that's saying is that it's really interesting. It would be really wild if we could see this in you know, 4K or something. But they literally take him to the edge of a cliff and he gets basically to the edge of a cliff. And then it says this, that he passed through them. In other words, they couldn't touch him. They couldn't throw him off the cliff. It wasn't his time. And uh, th- this, is, this is very interesting because it, it seems, and, and you can see this in your life, th- there are times where life is beating the heck out of you and, and life is manhandling you, but life is not permitted to throw you off a cliff. It's not your time. And it says all of our times and seasons are in his hands. And so the enemy can't kill Jesus. And, and Jesus really illustrated that when the Roman soldiers came to get him, they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, I'm he. And they all fall back. And he was telling them, fellas, you're not taking my life. I'm laying it down. And then he let them know in Matthew 26 that I could call on a legion of angels. In other words, 1,200 angels will come and destroy Rome like that. And that's in my power to do, but it's not in my nature to do. It's not what I came to do. In fact, I came to lay down my life. And uh, many times God comes in a way that is contrary to what we're expecting. And we have to adjust what we're expecting and what we're desiring so that we could see his plan and then move with that. So Jesus on his inauguration day, he said that I am Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And this was before that that had a number in it. 
But he says, I am the Messiah. And not only am I the Messiah, but I'm a prophet. And I came with a prophetic vocation. And a prophetic vocation is one of warning. It's, it's, you actually are predicting what could be happening and you're warning people so that it doesn't have to happen. So he came to warn Israel that if you uh, try to fight Rome, if you try to do the kingdom thing through the world system, you're going to be crushed and destroyed. So the kingdom of God, uh, it doesn't advance through sword or through gun or through bomb or through plane. It actually, uh, N.T. Wright says that the kingdom or the church advances through miracle and martyrdom. It's through sacrifice and through the supernatural that the kingdom comes into birth in the earth. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very different uh, situation. It's, it's a very different way of, in which God does what he's doing. And we have to understand how God is doing what he's doing if we're going to be a part of it. So if we try to serve God our own way, we won't actually be able to serve God because God is not asking us to serve him our way. He's actually asking us to get on board with what he's doing, which is very different uh, than what we're wanting him to do. And so, um, you know, there, there's a lot here, but, but ultimately, Jesus is, is the light of the world and he's a light to the nations and he came to be the light of Israel so that that light would go to the nations through the seed that was promised in Abraham, right? Through Abraham's seed, the nations would be blessed. And so Jesus is Abraham's seed. And so he's fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham. And he's reminding the people of Israel of God's mercy for the Gentiles or God's mercy to the undeserving. And they don't like that. For some reason, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is, but maybe because they were victimized by Rome, uh, maybe because life kicked them in the teeth, maybe they didn't want to see mercy for other people. But God's heart and God's agenda is mercy, and um, you know, wh- one of the things that's very interesting about people who are double-minded is is we want um, <laughs> we, we want mercy for us and justice for others, and. Um, God wants to actually change our hearts so that there's not bitterness there. So that the mercy that we freely have received, um, we give it away. And um, when we, as we get more into the kingdom, we're going to really talk uh, on that. And so, don't let fear blind you to what God is doing. And uh, don't let bitterness blind you to what God wants to do. But actually be merciful. That's really what this is about. This is about God's grace and God's mercy for the nations. And the nations is us, by the way, because none of us are, are Jewish and none of us are sacrificing lambs waiting for some Messiah somewhere, by the way. So, and there's really no, like, hardcore people like that anywhere, really, actually. So, all of us are undeserving. All of us, right? We are the pagans, the nations, the Gentiles. We have been brought in to the covenant through Jesus, which is good news. And so we should be that good news to the world around us. And um, the easiest way that the world around us can see good news is 
when we are a people of reconciliation because we've been reconciled, because God's been merciful to us, because God has been good to us, we then, in fact, respond to him and we treat others the way he has treated us. God is looking for me and looking for you and looking for us. He's looking for we to actually treat others the way he has treated us. Has he been kind to you? Yes. Has he been good to you? Yes. Has he been patient to you? Yes. So that is how he wants me to treat others. Is it easy? No. In fact, it's actually impossible without him. But I'm not without him. So that means everything is different. And what was impossible without him is now possible with him. And so the Christian life, whether you're healing the sick or keeping your pants on or living with integrity, the Christian life is supernatural. You cannot live the Christian life without Jesus. You cannot be faithful to God, to your wife, with your finances in life. You cannot be faithful without Jesus. You can't be a Christian without Jesus. Christ in you is what makes you a Christian. And so he is the one that gives us rule over our spirit. He is the one that gives us power to possess our vessel for honor. He is the one who gives us power to say no to greed and no to fear. Yes to love, yes to hope. He is the one. So the thing about the kingdom is the king has chose to live inside of his people, teaching us then how to live and how to flow. And we live differently than the world around us. And, and that's actually what should testify to who we really are, by how we live. Not by what we say, but by how we live. That's, that's the difference maker, how we live. And so, uh, just as you saw with Elisha in the Old Testament, what does he do? Instead of killing people, which the, I'm sure the king of Israel put in real excited, they would have slaughtered a whole bunch of Syrians that day, but that just wasn't on God's heart. If Jesus would have stood up in the synagogue and saying, Thus says the Lord, God is coming with a sword to Rome when we're going to start a revolution. Instead of um, wanting to throw him off a cliff, they would have exalted him and lifted him up and he would have been crowd surfing on his first day of ministry. But that's just not what it's about. And so, here's the prayer. God make us more Christ-like because Christ is what God is like. Let's pray. Um, Father, we just say that we can't be a Christian without you. We can't live this life without you. And we need you for every part of this life. And we're so thankful that we have you. We don't have to beg for you. Um, You have freely given yourself to us, God. And so we're so thankful for you. We're thankful for the mercy that you've given us. We're thankful that you've been so good to us, God. And so help us to be Christ to the world around us. What you've been for us and what you've been to us, help us to be that to others. Just the way we can come to you with anything. At any time, let us have that same spirit of Christ where people can come to us, they can trust us, they can feel that it's a judgment-free zone, that, hey, it's a truth zone. But it's a judgment-free zone. You'll, you'll tell me the truth, but you'll love me. Lord, help us to love people the way you loved us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.